Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is found in the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, 11 through 16, 25 through 29, and chapter 16, 1 through 7. This can be found on page 345 of the Black Bibles in your pews. Again, 1 Chronicles, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, 11 through 16, 25 through 29, and chapter 16, 1 through 7. Please join me in standing for the reading of the Word of God. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. Verse 11. Then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Amminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark and the singers, and Kenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on the harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of a window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the Ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jehiel, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, 
and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then, on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would come and speak to us. Would you move our hearts in the hearing of your word? Would you instruct us? Would you give us your grace? I ask that the presence of the Holy Spirit would move among us, align us, inspire us. God, would you give us spirit of revelation in this room? God, would you fill us with the knowledge of what you desire for us and for your glory? God, would you come in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Let's just jump right in uh, to the notes. (laughs) I'm laughing because I just said this and then here we go again. So we are in a season of building as our church. Uh, You've heard me say it a lot of times. This is, this is an important marker in the life of our spiritual family. And one of the ways, if you've been with us for a while, or if you're new with us, one of the ways that we're um, seeking to strengthen our body and discern what it is God's calling us toward is through preaching the books of Chronicles. Look at letter B. Uh, the books of Chronicles were written for those that were returning from the Babylonian exile And they were charged to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they had gone into exile because of their disobedience. And the temple of God had been destroyed. And it had lay in ruins. And so these captives are coming back to the land with the instruction to rebuild God's house. To strengthen it and repair the ruins. To build up the foundations and establish the worship of the Lord Uh, among his people again. And the book of Chronicles is written to give strength to the people who had been called by God to do this. Because anytime God calls us towards something, it's way harder than we imagine it's going to be, right? It's small and it starts in really small places. It's messy. It's difficult. It's arduous. I mean, think about foundation laying, right? You have to big, you have to like dig a huge uh, hole in the ground that's messy and muddy and uh, difficult to work with. And it doesn't look really pretty for a long time. And so we need courage in these seasons. When the Lord calls us to repair and build foundations, we need, we need strength and we need invigorating the presence of the spirit to inspire us to continue with patient endurance in the midst of that. And these books are written for that purpose. And they're written with like uh, blueprints of how God desires his house to be built. So let her see the message of the books is that the people of God are designed. We, we work best. God's people are designed to live under the rule of the right King. That's King Jesus for us who are this side of the new covenant. Uh, Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he was raised again to be seated on the throne, uh, as the rightful heir 
to David's kingdom. That's who Jesus is. And by faith in him, we become part of his people. But we need to submit our lives up under the rightful king and orient our lives around right worship given to the Lord. So this vision of living under the blessings of God's kingdom is meant to reorient people's hearts toward a wholehearted pursuit of God. Now, there are seasons still. You know, we're not about... Uh, a building a temple, you know, in the, in the new covenant, the people of God are the temple. So we're not seeking to necessarily build a physical temple, right? We don't have to go and repair the ruins of the fallen place. Although we do have to work on our building at times, but our call is to build the house of God, which is his church. And there are seasons when the church gets disordered around these two realities. Living up under the rightful rule of King Jesus. You know, we, we change our allegiances to things of this world. We look to other things. We, we wander in the ways. And we, we, we give allegiance, whether it's to other political realities, to economic realities, other, other gods. We submit our lives and pursue them. And we get disordered in our worship. And there are times when the family of God, the household of God, needs to be about repairing the ruins. When we find ourselves having been shaken, and we find ourselves in places where we need to be rebuilt. And the ways that we do that are laid out in this book. It's submission to the king and rightly ordered worship. We find that. And I think we find ourselves in such a season, both church corporate, you know, you could talk about the universal church or the Western church. We've, we've said this a lot of times. We find ourselves in a really unique season where we're watching kind of lots of institutional realities crumble before us. We're watching pastors and congregations depart from the orthodox teaching of the scripture and ingest the spirit of the age in the way that they're proclaiming what is true. And we're seeing the abdication of rightly ordered worship to the living God. We see that. And I think in our own spiritual family, we're walking out of a season where the Lord was at work shaking us. He exposed places where our foundations were cracked and faulty. And we, we know where we're at right now. And I think that there is a remarkable need for us to step in and ask the Lord to realign us around these realities. What does wholehearted submission to King Jesus look like? And how do we put at the heart of our spiritual family a burning altar of worship to the Lord? How do we offer up to him the sacrifices of worship and adoration and prayer that are pleasing to him in a manner that orients everything we do around those realities? That's where we find ourselves. And I I, I believe that this is the season to move toward that. I um, Earlier this year, I, I had an interesting uh, 
experience. I had someone that I hadn't talked to in quite some time, several, several years, emailed me out of the blue and, uh, they, they asked to meet with me. They said, you know, I I was praying for you and, uh, I, I, I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you in this season. And it took us quite a while to get together. Uh, we finally get together, we sit down and they, they look at me and they go, you know, we're, we're reading through the Bible as a family. We're a little behind in our Bible reading plan and we're in the book of Haggai and who in the world gets a word for somebody out of the book of Haggai. And they begin to tell me the word and they said, uh, it's, it's Haggai chapter one where the prophet comes to the people and says, don't say in your heart, it's not time to rebuild. Consider your ways and get to work is the word. And I'm sitting there just kind of smiling. Just one of these. Hmm. Hmm. Cause I absolutely know what that word is. If you were here, I preached Haggai one January 1st as this is what's going to mark us as a spiritual family in this next year. And I'm just sitting there smiling. I didn't give I didn't show my cards. I went, Hmm, thank you. And I left, wrote it down. We are in a season of rebuilding, right? This is what God has in front of us. And this next chunk of this book is really important for that. So we saw last week, if you look with me at letter D, first Chronicles 13 kicks off a, a brand new section of the book. It's concerned exclusively from first Chronicles 13 to the end of the book. It is concerned with David's desire to build a house for the Lord, his longing to rebuild and, and, and bring about this orientation of the life of God's people around worship, around God's resting place, right? This work happens in stages. We're, we're in the middle of David seeking to go get the Ark of the Covenant to bring back to Jerusalem. Then we see that David wants to build a house for God, meaning a temple for God. And God tells him he can't. And so the rest of first Chronicles is David not giving up on his desire, but going, if I can't build it and my son gets to, what I'm going to do is spend all of my energy, all of my strength, all of my resources, all of my time. I'm going to order it to prepare Solomon so that he can do it. I'm going to get him ready for that. So this is where we find ourselves. Last week, we looked at David's first hasty attempt to bring the ark uh, back to Jerusalem and the dire consequences that came from their hasty attempt. You know, they didn't, they didn't seek out the way that the Lord had designed for them to bring back the ark. They just went about it the way that they thought it should be done. And it led to dire consequences as Yuza reached out, touched the ark and was killed. So let's, this is now going to start the second attempt to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. But to do that, I want to give you a little situation. Look at Roman numeral two. We got to know a little bit of David's heart. So to understand this section of first Chronicles, we have to understand 
David's consuming passion to build a resting place for God. Psalm 132 gives us a little insight into this. And if you, you want more here, if you weren't with us, I, I preached Psalm 132 in August. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, we, we walk through Psalm 132 as a heart desire for us in this season as we set out to do this. But David had this consuming passion to find a resting place for the Lord. Look at Psalm 132 here. The psalmist starts, remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, all that he went through, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. So he made a, an internal commitment to the Lord. He made a vow to the Lord. These are the things that I'm going to do. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I won't give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And what he's saying is, I'm not going to go about business as usual. I'm not going to take the comforts of my own house. I'm not going to live easy and pretend that everything's okay. If God does not have a resting place among his people, I'm not just going to go through the motions and live in a spirit of complacency. That's what David's getting at here. He says, I will take less, less comfort, less money, less, uh, less for myself in order to see God rest among his people. David possessed a unique revelation that God desires to be at rest among his people, right? This is a revelation. This isn't just that David like had a great idea to build a big building to show off how wealthy he was. And it wasn't just that David liked worship music. You might think like David's a harpist. He gets in power. He likes songs. And so he's going to fill his kingdom with songs. David had a revelation of what God wanted. And he oriented his life toward that. A dwelling or a resting place speaks of a place where God is not striving against his people. This happens more when God's people are in agreement with him in the places of worship, meaning we agree with who he is, and in prayer, we agree with what he's promised. So David vowed to live in extravagant devotion to seeking the Lord with all of his resources. This vow included spending time in the presence of God in his house. We see in Psalm 27, four, participating in spiritual disciplines. Here's a fascinating one. Go read uh, Psalm 69. I've got it on the next page for you. David says, zeal for your house consumes me. Zeal for the presence of God consumes me. And then what does he say? I did this with fastings and sackcloth. I took less comforts. Because I wanted to see your presence. I wanted to see you establish your presence among your people. And with extravagant giving toward this end. Look at 1 Chronicles 22. With great pains, David says, this is at the end of his life as he's trying to provide and be ready for Solomon to do this. I've provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold. A million talents of silver bronze and iron beyond weighing these. It's so much timber and stone too. these. You must add. So he's, he's given 
time, energy, money, resources. He's consumed with this vision, going all in and giving himself to it. Look at letter D. David was unsatisfied with the comforts of the world and the cares of this life. He recognized the futility of wealth, ease, and pleasure when it's disconnected from the manifestation of God's kingdom in the world. Hey, we all have wealth, pleasure, and comfort. And if we are contented to live with that apart from the manifestation of God's presence in and among his people in this world, we are disordered. We're disordered. We need a consuming vision that God would take up residence here. Right? I want, I want to be personally, and I want to be around people who are not content to just walk through life with a little more comfort and a little more ease and a little more blessing and a little more favor and a little more up and to the right and a little better job and a little more travel and a little more whatever. I want to be disillusioned with that. I want to be disillusioned with that because I want the consuming vision of our spiritual family to be God take up residence here. Take up residence in this spiritual family. Take up residence in my home. Take up residence in my job. Take up residence in my neighborhood. Take up residence in this city. God, would you do it? And until you do, I am not going to give up. I'm going to wrestle with you and wrestle with you and wrestle with you and wrestle with you until you have a place where you rest. So this is what's consuming David as he's preparing to get the ark to Jerusalem. So let's look at our text then. David prepares to bring the ark to Jerusalem. This is the first part of 1 Chronicles 15. So after three months, right, we, we try to bring it back first. It fails. So David puts it in the house of Obed-Edom and goes off to try to figure out what went wrong. Three months later, right, he goes to set, set out again to bring the ark back. So during this time, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, right? So the presence of God is in the, in the house of Obed-Edom, and he's blessing his house. And he's blessing David's house and expanding the boundaries of Israel because David is, we see at the end of chapter 14, seeking the Lord again and again, and he's causing them to have these military victories. So he's expanding the boundaries of the people under David's leadership. It's also likely that in this time, David goes back to the source, right? Where did we go wrong in bringing the ark? Let's go back to the commandments of Moses. So after the failed attempt to move the ark on a new cart, which was in accordance with the Philistines' pagan practices... David determines that only the Levites can carry the Ark of the Lord in service to him. This is in accordance with the law given by Moses. So we see this here in verse 2, right? David commands, okay, nobody can carry the Ark except the Levites. This is where we're going because God chose them to do this, to carry the Ark and to minister to him forever. We see where this happens or where this comes from is in Deuteronomy 10, verse 8, 
Moses says, at the time, uh, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant and to stand before him to minister to him and bless in his name even to this day. So this was the commandment that God had given. So David goes off for three months. He's seeking the face of God. How do we do this? How do we go about this? What, where did we go wrong? We see it. Now we're going to orient our lives towards obedience, towards walking in the way that the Lord has, right? So David takes great pains to prepare both the place and the people for the ark to dwell, right? We, we read this, this chapter is fascinating to me because you read these statements and it's like, it's so easy to pass over them. Organizing people to do something is really hard. Okay. Anybody that is in any kind of leadership in any kind of capacity, if you're a parent, if you're a, if you've got one direct report at a job, you know what I'm talking about. Organizing people to go in one direction together is really, really, really hard. And David spends months preparing this, right? Ordering this, establishing this. This is a lot of work represented here. A lot of work. So what does it include? I want to give you four things that it includes. And I I actually want to take this for us. Okay. If, if these, if we're in a season of building, I think these principles help us. And how do we step toward this right now? The first thing we see is that David possessed a sober minded commitment to obedience. Look at verse two, right? We saw this already. He commanded that no one but the Levites could carry the ark. Why? Because God had chosen this to be the way. Look at verse 13. He tells them why they did wrong the first time. Because you, Levites, did not carry it the first time. The Lord, our God, broke out against us. Because we did not seek him, according to the rule. We wanted to seek his presence, but we didn't do it in the way he said. So we're going to submit ourselves to the way that he said to do it. Then we also see in verse 15, the Levites then carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Right? So the first thing we see is David seeks to order the stewardship of God's presence according to the commandments of God. So we have to hold a high standard toward obedience and honoring of God's commandments as we seek to establish worship at the heart of our spiritual family. Okay, so we have to have a unwavering commitment to pursue a spirit of obedience, a spirit of obedience. One, one of the ways that I think this looks in our, in our moment is reclaiming the centrality of God's word over everything. What I mean by that is making the word of God the standard for how we evaluate the world, our place in it, how we see God, how we see one another, how we see people, how we see people change, what we think the problem with the world is, right? Okay, so everybody has a gospel message. The Bible, the gospel answers 
questions for us. Here's the questions they answer. Who is God? Why did he make everything? What are people for? What's wrong with the world? How does God go about redeeming what's wrong with the world? Right? That's, that's your questions, right? The Bible tells us God is the uncreated triune God. One God existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why did he create the world? To fill it with the knowledge of his glory. And he created people so that you and I could live in partnership with and experience of his glory. What is wrong with the world? Is it just that the world's a little broken? It's sin. Rebellion. Every one of us rebelled against God. Looked at what God had created. Looked at what God created us for and the way that God designed us to live. And we said, no. And we ran headlong the other way. That's why every problem in the world exists. Death, destruction, brokenness, sickness, all of that exists because of rebellion. What does God do to remedy that? He sent his only son to live a perfect life to die a sacrificial death and to defeat death by being raised from death, conquering it and offering salvation to any who will believe in him. Okay. You guys know that you go. Yep. Check. We got the gospel. What's the gospel of the world, right? And I'm sad to say this has infected us way more than I would like to believe. Way more than I like to admit, right? Probably don't believe in a God or it's really hard to most of the world. Why do humans exist or what's the end goal of humans? I would say the contemporary concept of that is humans exist to realize themselves, right? Human potential is about you discovering the realest form of you that latently lives inside of you somewhere and removing everything that would keep you from becoming that. So if that's boundaries around you that your parents imposed it on you, reject it. If that's boundaries that are culturally put upon you because of uh, quote-unquote archaic standards, reject them. Rebel against them. Anything that would keep you from coming into that is wrong. So what's the problem with the world then? Everybody else. Right? This is why we have an inordinate problem with victimization. It is a gospel. It is a gospel. The problem with the world exists outside of you somewhere. Therefore... What do you do about the problem? Reject every place that tries to impose that upon you. And we actually do ingest this, right? We ingest this. It's, I I would call it, it's kind of like a therapeutic view of the world. The goal is to be actualized and fulfilled and contented in finding wholeness in myself. 
not I find my end in submitting myself to the living God. So we need a sober-minded obedience to reclaim God's word as the standard above everything else. We need a commitment to holiness. Look at what David does when he calls the Levites. Verse 12, he says to them, hey, you're the heads of the father's houses. What's the first thing he tells them? Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you might do this work. So, verse 14, they do it. They consecrate themselves. David commanded the priests to consecrate themselves under the Lord for the work. Throughout scripture, when God calls a people to step into a specific work, he always calls them to be set apart for it. Not just to do the work, but in their holiness before him. He wants them to, he wants to clean their vessel as they step toward the work. This looks like, we'll make it applicable to us, a pursuit of holiness and a thoughtful commitment to order our lives toward what God has called us to. So here's, here's what I mean when I say a spirit of wholehearted or a spirit of obedience. I mean, is there any place in your life that is off the table to the Lord? A spirit of wholeheartedness says there's not a single place where I am harboring disobedience to the Lord. Everything's on the table. And if he speaks to me, I will step toward it. So you have a humble posture of whatever you say, God. Then the second part of a spirit of obedience is a, and a desire, a seeking to obey. Now a seeking to obey doesn't mean that we have perfect victory over it. Seeking to obey, it says, this thing is not off limits for you. I'm not going to harbor this thing over here and live contented with it and not step toward it when you put your finger on it. When you say, I want that from you, I want that part of your finances. I want that part of your time. I want that relationship. I want that part of how you think about your vocation. I want that part of your resentment and your bitterness towards your family. You don't go, no, Lord. You go, Yes, Lord, help me, help me. Then you try to walk toward it and then you're going to stumble. This is the way it works. You're going to stumble. What do you do in that moment? You don't just get complacent with your stumbling. You stand up, you realize it, you repent for it. You say, that is sin, Lord. Then you run into the heart of God and receive fresh the mercy of God in Christ Jesus with no condemnation. And you say, I'm going to walk towards that again. And you might stumble again and again and again. But every time you stand up and go, Lord, that is sin. I don't want that. Would you help me not want it? Would you turn my heart and give me grace to walk this way? And you walk towards that. That's a commitment to holiness. Number three, we see David give a lot of energy toward exuberant worship. Right? This is verses 16 to 23, the order, the intention, the appointing, the loudness. Yeah. I had the kids in here before we brought them into the sanctuary. We did this kids in the worship service uh, meeting. It was a really sweet moment. And I asked the kids if the Lord likes it when it gets really loud in here. And you couldn't quite tell in their face. They were like, what am I supposed to do here? It was awesome. This is just a funny story. I said, yes, the Lord likes it when it's loud. And I'm like, I'm getting loud. And I'm telling him how much he likes it when it's loud. I mean, 
read through this. Symbols can't be quiet. Let the reader understand. (laughs) Trumpets can't be quiet. This is, this is loud. And they're, they're doing this regularly because it embodies something. Then here's a funny thing. Then I, I asked the kids, does the Lord like it when it's quiet? And because I had said yes, I watched a couple kids go. <laughs> and I was like, no, the Lord likes it when it's quiet too. Uh, he actually likes it sometimes when it's quiet. He likes both. But in this passage, we see David's commitment to facilitate musical and choral worship to the Lord while accompanying the work of the transport. David understood that the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is greatly to be praised. The loud, vigorous, powerful worship was to remind the people of the glorious majesty of God. Okay, so what does this mean for us? It means worship more. When we walk in on Sunday morning, don't be late. Worship starts at 10. Worship is not just something that we do to like grease the wheels for the important work. It is work before the Lord. It is where we offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and adore him for who he is. We agree with him. We remind ourselves of what he's like. We remind him of his promises toward us. This is really important work. And we come, come ready to sing. Come ready to sing. Sing your guts out. This is actually part of why we have it loud. Because some people go, I don't have a very good voice. Great. Nobody will hear you. Sing really loud. It's really great. Sing as loud as you can. And let me just give a little, little uh, gentle encouragement. Hey, men. Sing loud. Sing loud. You have been given the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Let your voice resound in this place. Then David administrates. He does tons of work to make practical preparations. There's all sorts of work David does. He gives time and energy and money and resources and he orients people and he gives them clarity and he makes it clear how they're supposed to respond and he appoints people. I mean, you just see it over and over. David summons, David commands, David appoints, David brings, David. I mean, there's all this work that's being done, right? He is, they're ordering and establishing and aligning things toward this end. Okay, so we get all this work and then they come in procession into the city. I want you to just notice two things. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. I want you to notice two quick things. Look at verse 26. Number one thing I want you to notice is God helps. God helps. Look at this here, verse 26. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark. Now, I actually imagine this is pretty mundane and pretty quote unquote insignificant. I don't think that they like picked up the thing and were like, whoa, this weighs like a feather. We can do this all day. 
because God's helping us. They didn't do that at all. It was still heavy. It was still a burden. They were still moving it. It was still really earthy and really natural. But they had divine perspective and faith to see that their ability to walk into this was God's activity at work in them. This is what grace is like in your life. When you think about holiness, when you think about obedience, when you think about seeking to step toward him, grace does not make things easy. It just makes it doable. If you miss that, you are going to always wait until you get this like massive zap from God to do it and you won't ever do it. Grace animates your faculties. It empowers the way that God has designed you. And so we see God helping all along the way. The second thing we see is that extravagant devotion always, always draws disdain. We see this, right? David is exuberant. And here's just a couple things. Number one, David's not naked. Okay, so some people think that David's dancing naked before the Lord, right? David's not naked. It actually says he's wearing something. And he's not just wearing like a loincloth. That's not the point here. Both of those get stated as why she's despising him. What's happening here is David is submitting as a priest to the true king. In a procession, who sits and receives? The king. Right In a procession, a triumphal procession into a, into a city, the king sits and does nothing and receives everything. And David, the king of the people, goes, I'm not the real king here. I am going to be the master of ceremonies and use all of my strength to orient worship and adoration to the true king. And Michael hates it. She despises it. Extravagant worship always draws the ire of the watching world. So David reforms worship and puts music right at the heart of it. Right, And we can't come to this passage without seeing how catalytic and revolutionary this is. But David understands something foundational about God. Namely, God is zealous to be worshipped. And he's designed his kingdom to be established on the worship of his people. I want to just highlight these three words and then we'll, we'll come to a close. So David appoints, meaning he is intentional, he cares, he provides to orient the labors around facilitating musical worship in the tabernacle. David's vow to seek a resting place for God involved significant labor, patience, and resource. Now look at uh, verse 4 here. He appointed some of the Levites as ministers. And I want you to notice these three things. And these are going to give shape to us. We should be about these three things. To invoke, to thank, and to praise. Look at letter F. Invoking. The word here uh, could be otherwise translated elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's translated as remember. In the scriptures, there's a concept that gets reiterated over and over again called putting the Lord in remembrance. It's a phrase that's used kind of shorthand for intercession. So intercession, when we pray, all intercession is, is 
reminding God and asking him to do the things that he said he was going to do. God, you said that you were going to release this. God, would you do it? It's reminding God of his own nature. God, you are full of steadfast love and mercy and compassion. Would you be that in this situation? That's intercession and it's called putting the Lord in remembrance. So one of the ways that the Levites were to facilitate worship in the house of God was to remember God's nature, remember God's promises, remind him of that as a fragrant offering that would go up before him. God, this is who you said you were. You revealed this to be about who you are. Remember this. When you deal with us, remember that you are merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Remember, God, that you promised to be gracious to your people. Remember, God, that you promised these things. And we put God in remembrance. And we see this all over the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 62. Isaiah promises of a day when the Lord will set watchmen who will day and night not be quiet. They're loud. They're always saying something. Now, what are they talking about? Here's what he calls them. You who put the Lord in remembrance. It's the same word for invoke. You who remind the Lord. This is what you said you would do. This is what you said you would do. What does he tell them to do? Take no rest. What else does that sound like? Psalm 132. I'm not going to give rest to my eyes, slumber to my eyelids until what? Until God does what he said he was going to do. Until God is who he says he would be in this place, in my family, in this church, in this city. Until God takes up residence there, I am going to give him no rest. I'm not going to shut up. I'm going to be like that persistent widow that keeps banging on the door of the judge. Give me justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. Do not let this go. God, give justice. You said you would give speedy justice. You said you would do this. You said you would do this. God's not bothered by that. He wants to be wrestled with. He wants you to come and put him in remembrance. Then they're called to thank the Lord. This is remembering on our own behalf. Now, remembering God's nature is putting in him, him in remembrance and asking him to be who he said he would be. Thanksgiving is us remembering the truth about our stories. Remembering God's faithfulness over the years. Remembering God's care and saying thank you for it. We don't want to be, we don't want to be like those that got healed and went away and never turned around and said thank you. We don't want to be that. We want to thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you delivered me. Thank you that you've kept me. Thank you that you have watched over me. Thank you for the blessings you have given me. Thank you that you've kept me through seasons of trial and testing. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. This is the kind of people we need to be. Thanking the Lord for his kindness and goodness and mercy over us. Look at page four. And then they praise him. This is the final task given to the Levitical musicians, offering praise to the Lord, acknowledging that he alone is God and to him alone worship must be given. The Levites in some ways stand as the leaders of God's people and even of all creation, 
Offering to the Lord the glory he alone is due. That's what praise means. It means I acknowledge that you are the Lord and you deserve worship. This is what all creation was created for. To find our place coming up under reality and saying, I am not God. That is not God. That is not God. You alone are God. And I honor you for that. I worship you for that. So this is what David sets the Levites about to do, to invoke, to thank, and to praise. Look at letter F with me down at the bottom. Essentially what I'm going to do there is try to prove to you why this is important for us. And I've done that in other places. You can go read this on your own, but I do want to say this before we leave. God's called his people to be the rebuilt tabernacle of David. I don't have time to prove it, but in Amos, God promises through Amos, there's going to be a day when I repair the tent of David. He doesn't say the household of David. He doesn't say the temple of David. He doesn't say uh, the kingdom of David. He says the tabernacle, this thing that David built with worship at the heart of it, honoring and invoking and praising and thanking God. This is what I'm going to do. And then James in the New Testament in Acts chapter 15, he interprets by the revelation of the Holy Spirit that the church, uh, Jew and Gentile, is now the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. He says, this is happening right in front of our eyes. God is doing what he always said he's going to do. That little tent that existed in David's backyard where worship was offered up in the raw presence of God, where people invoked him and thanked him and praised him with, with no veil between them and him. This is happening right now, people of God. As the gospel is going to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, God is building the temple or the, the tabernacle of David. He's doing it. This is who we are. This is who we are. And he says, there's a day that's coming through Isaiah that I'm going to take anyone, anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a Levite. It doesn't matter if you're a a Jew, a Gentile, a foreigner, a eunuch, someone who's far off. If you want to join yourself to the Lord and minister to him and serve him, I will bring you close to me and set you in my house. I will set you there and you can invoke and pray and thank and worship and give your life away for him. This is foundational to our DNA. This is what God is asking us to do in this season, to orient our spiritual family around this reality, that we are a family that seeks to invoke, thank, praise, offer thanksgiving, offer sacrifices of worship and adoration and praise to the Lord. That is what he's calling us to rebuild our lives around, rebuild our family around. When the world is getting darker, the worship in here needs to be getting hotter. When the world is going crazy, we need to come up under King Jesus and say, be enthroned on the praises of your people. Be enthroned in this place. Let it touch my family and my vocation and my neighborhood and my job. All of the places that you've given me. Lord Jesus, take up your dominion. How does he do that? On the praises of his people. On the worship and adoration coming from hearts that have been captured by his grace. By his saving power. By his own hand at work in us. This is how we're orienting our lives and our spiritual family in this season.
And he's calling us to do this intentionally together to become this as our foundational reality. Now, I just want to say this. This requires a consistent aligning of our values. And this is what we're doing in Sunday school. If you've been coming with us, I love it. Thank you. This has been fun. If you're not coming on Sunday, start next week. 8.30, Sunday mornings. We are seeking to align at a values level. This is why we're going after this. If this is what God's calling us to, we only give our energy and resources and time and finances and strength to the things we love. Right? Our actions follow our values. They follow our loves. And we are seeking to align our loves together as a people. So as we run into this and it gets really hard and it gets really dark and it gets really difficult and we've got to sustain this over the long haul and we've got to stir up one another's hearts and encourage one another that we have been aligned in what we love. That's why we're doing that. Come and be a part of that. So it requires a plan to walk toward this. Sunday worship. Here's my, again, call. Please be on time. Now we're doing a really good job of it. We're doing a lot better at it. Sunday school helps. Praise the Lord. But when we come in, let's be ready to do war. Our, our singing, our praise, our worship isn't about me feeling something or getting something. It is about me going to battle and asking the King of Kings to be enthroned in this place. That's what singing is about. That's what worship is about. Invoking his name and thanking him and praising him. So come, come on Wednesday nights when we order our time around praying together. Again, it is the most important outside of Sunday gathering, the most important meeting of our week. When we come together and intentionally invoke the name of God, invoke him, put him in remembrance. God, you said these things about your church and about uh, your desire. Do them, do them in us. Do them in us. And we're not going to give you rest until you do them. And then a commitment to continue in the face of difficulty and pressure. Friends, this, this is the blueprint. This is the blueprint. This is what God is inviting us into in this season. And I want to say yes. And I want to invite you to say yes. I want you to say, this is what God is at work doing. I want to be a part. I want to step in. Here's how we're going to do it. Amen. Would you stand as the team comes up this morning? We're going to respond this morning by coming to the table, by singing and again, I want to invite you, sing, sing with vigor. This is, this is warfare. This is, this is our warfare. Again, when the world is getting darker, we, we want to ask the Lord to let our worship get hotter. This is where light breaks in. This is where the truth of God reigns. This is where Jesus sits as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords over his body, over his family, as we align our hearts with him in agreement, he says, those are my people. And he establishes his kingdom, even in small ways among us.
So we're going to sing and then we're, we're going to pray. We have people that would love to pray with you. If, if you desire prayer, and again, this is, this is one of those places that I want us to stir up together. Um, this doesn't mean now, if your life is burning down and you need somebody to pray with you, we would love to do that. But this doesn't mean your life is burning down. This could just be, God, I want to go after that. And I need help. Ask someone to ask the Lord with you to help. If you need healing in your body, we would love to ask the Lord to establish his kingdom, establish his kingdom over sickness in our midst. As we worship him, let's ask him to establish his kingdom to, if you need deliverance, if there's a place of oppression or, uh, uh, darkness, that's got a, a, a stranglehold in your life. We would love to ask the Lord to push back darkness in that as well. But on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat of it. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's going to be spilled out and poured out. Take it and take it into you and drink it. And if you put all of your faith in Jesus, if you look to him and him alone for your salvation and you're standing before God, come and delight in this meal again this morning. Come and take a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up front in the middle in both sides of the balcony and then a gluten-free station over here to my right. Come and delight in the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. And if you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we want to ask that you not come take this meal with us. This is not a place where you have to pretend or walk through some form of religious rituals. We want you to take Jesus. So if you don't, this meal points to the fact that you have faith in him. It, it, it means nothing for you. So, so don't, don't feel the pressure to perform or come and be a part of that. Just stay in your seat where you're at. We're, we're really glad you're here. We, we, we pray that God would actually minister to your soul and meet you this morning. That he would open your eyes to see Jesus. Bring you into his family. But for those of you who are coming, I'm going to pray quickly over us and then we'll come. Servers, you're welcome to come forward now. And again, we have ministers in the room that would love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of grace in Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your own zeal to build and establish your kingdom. God, we submit our lives to you. We submit all of who we are to you. God, I ask that as we come and receive from the elements this morning, would you nourish us? Would you remind us of who we are? Would you give us strength in our lives? Would you give grace to us where we're at? Would you promote a spirit of obedience? Would you empower holiness? God, would you fill our hearts with gratitude, remembering the joy of salvation, the gift that you've given freely in Jesus? God, I ask that you would push back darkness, that you would set us free in our minds, in our emotions. God, I ask that you would break the power of addiction in our, our, our family. God, would you push back? Would you push back addictions in our family? Would you set us free and liberate us? God, repair the ruins. Repair the foundation stones here. 
Build us up into a holy temple, pleasing to you that you would dwell here with us. We honor you and we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.